You are listening to the podcast of Providence Church in Austin, Texas. We hope this message raises your affections for Jesus and helps you live out the gospel in everyday life. Two weeks ago, after church, we went home, and if you have kids, you know after church is just crazy. It's like trying to get them settled down from the weekend and in bed and for school, ready for school tomorrow and all of that. So we were in the midst of all that, and I'm trying to get uh, Holden to go to bed, my, my nine-year-old. And I used to do this thing with him where I would uh, give him piggyback rides up, upstairs. Um, he thought it was because I loved him, cared about him. It was really my trick to get him in bed. It was like I would say the ship's taking off, and I would do a countdown, and I'd start walking, and he'd have to like lunge and get on. All right, so we haven't done that in a while. And, uh, but last two Sunday nights ago, I was desperate. And so I was like, Holden, let's go to bed. And he said, Dad, can I get a piggyback ride? And I was like, oh, man, I mean, sure, but you're probably too big for that now. And I kind of lay down on the stairs so he can climb on. And he's, as he's walking toward me, he says, Dad, I, I, weigh, uh, I only weigh 70 pounds, you know. And as he's getting on my back, he says, but my love probably weighs another billion This is our last uh, sermon in the, seri- in the Exodus series, and there really is so much that one could say to try to bring this thing to a close, um, but I just have one very simple aim today, and that is to convey something of the magnitude of who God is and the billions of pounds of love that he has for his people. And so let's just dive in. I think that's what Exodus 40 is telling us. Let's look at the magnitude of God in these verses. Verse 34. The cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Everything in Exodus has been leading up to this moment. The glory of God in the midst of his people. They had seen glimpses of this glory before. Uh, you remember when they were about to cross the Red Sea, the cloud came before, between them and Pharaoh's army, and it was light for them and darkness for Pharaoh. They'd seen a glimpse of God's glory in that moment. The cloud came down on Mount Sinai. It was like thunder and lightning. It was like a consuming fire, and they could see it, but they weren't allowed to come up even to the edges of it, or they would like disintegrate on the spot. So they had seen something of the glory of God. They'd seen glimpses. But they had never seen anything like this. The glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. The fact that Moses is not allowed to go into the tabernacle tells you something about how incredible this is. Because even when God came down on Mount Sinai, he called Moses up. Moses went into the cloud while everybody else stayed away. But here, Moses is not allowed to go in. Remember, Moses also went into the tent of meeting. He, was, he met with God, he talked with God, and he would come out and his face was glowing. He had to wear a, a veil because his face was, was so bright so that people could look at him. But he's not allowed to go in here because the tabernacle is filled with the glory of God. So what is the glory of God? I mean, it's something we say all the time. We, we said it in our profession of faith, but what, is, what are we talking about? We use the word glory or glorious to talk about things that are impressive or especially good in some way. So we might say, this sunset is glorious. Or like, dude, your beard is glorious. Things like that. Uh, We also use it to talk about like things of achievement or honor or victory. 
Last week, one of my friends texted me. We were talking about our son's football game that was to be that night. And he said, if we win the next two games, then we play for all the glory. And what he means by that is we play for first place. If we lose one of those games, we play for third place. Third place is its own kind of glory, but it's not all the glory. First place is all the glory. Because if you win first place, it means you're on top. We would be on top. We'd be better than every other team. We would be victorious. And as we were thinking about that, we're like, that would be awesome. Because like the, the reputation and the name of our school would be held high. Other people would fear us. It would be glorious for the kids. You know, I mean, that's, that's what we meant. It'd be awesome for the kids. All of this gets at what the glory of God is. It's his holiness and his beauty and his excellence. It's his name, his honor, his praise. Uh, The root word for glory is weighty. You know when someone important or powerful comes into a room, there's there's just a kind of weight that enters the room with them? Well, that's kind of what we have with God. It's his gravitas, his prestige. It's his consequence. When God comes into the room, it gets heavy. You feel it. So, the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle means that God's presence was there, and they could see it. It was bright. It was beautiful. It was majestic. Couldn't take their eyes off of it. And they could feel it. It was, it was heavy. It had a gravitational pull to it that just drew them in. We're talking about the whole godness of God is in their midst. As I've been thinking about this, the magnitude, the glory of God, it has made me acutely aware of how dull my senses have become to the glory of God. Uh, My guess is that most of us have lost some sense of the weightiness of who God is in our lives. If we've learned anything from this series, we've learned that we are really not that different than Israel. We are prone to kind of put ourselves at the center of our own thoughts and our own desires. And, uh, and in doing so, we kind of, whether we know it or not, push God to the periphery of our, of our lives. This is what happens in Exodus 32, which we looked at just a couple weeks ago. You remember, God is up on the mountain in glory, but he's up on the mountain. And they're down in the camp. And they sort of grow weary of that distance. They begin to forget who God is. He becomes lighter in their minds. And so they um, make an idol. They, they turn their thoughts in on self and they make an idol. They bend God to their liking, which is what happens when you push God to the periphery. When God moves to the edges, idolatry always takes center place in our lives. But now in Exodus 40, God's not up on the mountain. He's in the camp. The tabernacle is in the center of the camp, and God is in the tabernacle. The glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And there around it, all eyes are on the glory of the Lord. And they're stunned. They're in awe. The, the golden calf seems so silly now. That's what we need today. All eyes on the glory of the Lord. Because the glory of God, when it gets you, it changes you. Listen, 
Would you like to let go of the anxiety and the fear that you've been feeling this week? Maybe this year, maybe your whole life. Would you like to surrender the angerness and the bitterness that you've been holding on to because of what's been done to you? Would you like to get out from underneath the pressure of always trying to prove yourself? If you want those things, then try to get your mind around this. God is here. Like in this room. He's with his people. All right, just take a breath. Let that sink in. Let your guard down for a minute. And open your mind and your heart up to the glory of God in our midst. Let's, uh, let's take a moment to consider the magnitude of just what God's doing in our world. It's one of the ways that we open our, our eyes to who God is, is we get them off of ourselves and what's going on in our lives and just think, what is God up to? What is he doing in our world? Uh, because God's purpose from before creation and in creation and in redemption and in the consummation of all things has always been and will always be to put his glory on display. God is about God not primarily about you. Uh, This is what the prophet Habakkuk said. The the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover the earth like the waters cover the sea. That's where the story's going. History is not primarily about us. It's about God. In 2002, a book came out called The Purpose Driven Life, and it just kind of like took over for a number of years. 30 million copies sold in the first five years. It was, it was crazy. Every church I knew of was doing purpose-driven small groups because it was the thing. It was hot. Uh, the first line in that book reads like this. It's not about you. And for some reason, that was earth-shattering. Like, it just freaked people out. Whoa! What else does this book say? You know? It was like news to us. But it wasn't news to God. I mean, the good news has always been that God is about himself, about his own glory, the perfections of his beauty, and not primarily about us. Uh, In Isaiah 43, God is talking about his people whom he will redeem, and he says, Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth, everyone who's called by my name, whom I created for my glory. In Ephesians 1, Paul says that even before the foundation of the world, before creation, God, uh, in his love, predestined us for adoption into his family through Christ. It was according to his purpose. But the end wasn't our redemption, as glorious as that is. The end was the next phrase, which is, to the praise of his glory. All that God had planned to do in our redemption and all that he has done for us in Christ is to the praise of his glory. Just a few verses later in Ephesians 1, Paul says that we've been sealed with the Holy Spirit and it's a guarantee, it's a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. We're going to take hold of our salvation in full someday. And he says, you know what that's for? To the glory of God, to the praise of his glory. We see this throughout the Exodus story. Why did God bring Israel out of Exodus? Well, there's some like surface level answers that are, that are right, which are he, he saw their affliction. 
He heard their cry. The text says those things. He made a covenant with their forefathers. That's all true. But all of those things actually serve a greater purpose, um, which is to put his glory on display. Let's, let me just give you a few examples. When Israel rebelled by the sea, uh, remember they saw Pharaoh and his army coming. This is before the cloud went between them. They freak out. They're like, ah, we came out here to die. Let's go back. And they rebel against God by the sea. Why does God in that moment have compassion on them? Why does he deliver them? Psalm 106 looks back on that event. Listen to what the psalmist says. Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works. They didn't remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but rebelled by the sea, at the Red Sea. Yet, God saved them. Why? For his namesake, that he might make known his mighty power. Why did God judge Egypt? Well, in Exodus 14, God says, I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them, into the sea after Israel, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, his chariots, and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh and his chariots and his horsemen. And so you begin to see that the glory of God is his holiness, which sometimes is expressed in judgment against wicked and evil. But the glory of God is also about his steadfast love, which is expressed in his salvation. And the Red Sea is the perfect picture. It's the glory of God and the salvation of Israel against the backdrop of his judgment against Egypt. Why did God show mercy to Israel when they sinned against him so many times in the the wilderness? This is what Ezekiel the prophet says. Actually, God says this. He's taking them back, and he said, I said I would pour out of my wrath upon them in the wilderness to make the full end of them. I think this is in reference to the golden calf incident. But then he says, but I acted for the sake of my name that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations. Over and over, God is for God, and that's good for his people. And then here in Exodus 40, God makes it abundantly clear the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. The Exodus story, the whole story of the universe from beginning to end is about the glory of God. This dynamic, uh, well, we should ask the question, what does this mean for us? That's great. He's out there. I get it. There's a capital R reality, but what does it mean for us? Well, here's what I would say. I think when you see the magnitude of God, when you just get a, a picture of it, it helps you see how relatively small everything else is. We're familiar with this sort of dynamic, right? You, um, you're going through a hard time, and it is hard, but then you, you hear of someone or you meet someone who's going through something much worse, and suddenly your trials feel lighter, don't they? Or you get, you get the iPhone 6, and it's awesome. It's the most amazing piece of technology you've ever seen for six months until the 6S comes out, and then it loses a little bit of its awesomeness, Right? This is, you have the same stack of old iPhones I do, probably, in your, in your, like in my closet at my house. They're, all these awesome pieces of technology are just holding down loose paper now. They're not that great. The new one shows us the relative smallness of the old ones, but it never ends. Um, this is how we live our lives. 
We put so much weight on things like our success and pleasure and security. And, and those are good things, but we make them out to be everything. Our, our mood rises and falls on, on our perception of whether or not we're experiencing those things in our life. But then sometimes we get a glimpse of God. Even just a glimpse of his magnitude and greatness. And all of a sudden that which was so weighty in our lives, we begin to realize is just momentary and fleeting. Paul says in Romans 8, talking about his suffering. This is what he says. He says, my suffering in this present age is not even worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And the same is true of all the good things that you experience, all your successes and treasures. When you see the beauty of the holiness of God, even the things of this world which have so much shine become dull in comparison. This is why Paul tells us in Colossians 3, set your mind on things above, not on the things of the world. It's not that those things are all wicked and bad. They just, they can't be, they can't satisfy you. Set your mind on Christ who is to come, and when he comes, when he appears in glory, you will appear with him in glory. That's the good stuff. Let me illustrate this with money, because money's easy. We all have it, and we all love it, and that's why it's easy to talk about. Uh, Ray Ortland is a pastor that I, I like in uh, Tennessee, can't remember which, I think Nashville. Uh, and he was talking about watching the second of the Hobbit movies and they're uh, rowing across the pond, and this dialogue happens. Uh, I'll just read it to you. Balin is collecting money uh, from the other dwarfs, and here's what happens. Balin says, there's, um, there's just a wee problem. We're ten coins short. And Thorin looks at, at Glowin and says, come on, give us what you have. And Glowin says, well, don't look at me. I've been bled dry by this venture. What have I seen for my investment? Not but misery and grief, and then Glowin notices the faces of all the other dwarfs turn, and they all fall silent. And it's because the clouds have parted, and they've caught a glimpse of their ancient homeland. And then Glowin says, bless my beard. And he reaches in his pockets, and he says, take it, take all of it. You see, there's, there's a glory that awaits us, a glory even that is here among us now, that if it takes hold of our hearts, we're just too happy to cling to the things of this world. They don't compare. But it's not just true of money. It's, it's everything in your life. If you can get it deep down in your gut that it's just not about you, you're a better person. You're a better husband and a better wife. See, when it's about you with your spouse, then you find yourself trying to control and manipulate to get things go your way. But but when it's not about you, you're free to to serve and to bless. When it's about you as a parent, then it is all about getting your kids just to conform to your desires in that moment, righteous or unrighteous as they may be. But when it's not about you, you're free to understand them, to lead them in a way that's fruitful for them. When it's about you with your friends, then it's always about sort of taking from them, getting their affirmation, getting their approval, getting them to say good things about you. But when it's not about you, then you're free to love them, to put their needs above your own. At work, when it's about you, it's about pressure. 
whether it's pressure you put on yourself or that you feel from others, but it's pressure to perform, to live up. And you know what that pressure actually does? It makes you play it safe. You actually don't perform as well as you could because you want to do just enough, you know, to like keep your job, but you don't want to take too much risk in order that you might fail. But when it's not about you, well, then you're free to be creative. Then you're free to think about not just your good, but the good of the company and the good of your customer. And the whole thing is better. You're free to invite feedback, criticism even, because it's not about you. God is about God. We're not the point. And that is unbelievably good news. Because think about this. Why is God in the tabernacle? He doesn't have to display his glory. God is totally glorious in and of himself, self-sufficient. Doesn't, he's not subject to what we think of him. And so why does he fill the tabernacle? For the good of his people. God is about putting his glory on display, but that glory is to be to the enjoyment of his people. We're meant to feel the weight of his love for us. Look at verse 36. He's in the temple. The verse 36, then he tells us, throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. So God has come down among his people, but more than that, his glory goes before them. The cloud and the pillar lead them. He's with them. He's for them. This is the weight of God's love. He delivers them and doesn't just like say, okay, you're on your own now. He delivers them and draws near to them. If you want to feel the weight of God's love, then you need to look to and consider how he has delivered us and draws near to us in the person of Christ. This is one of the great things about Exodus. It's a story about what happened to Israel, but it's our story too. It's about what God has done for us in Christ, because Jesus is the tabernacle. He's filled with the glory of God. This is what the Apostle John says when he's introducing Jesus to the world in his book. He says, the Word, the Word of God, became flesh and dwelled among us. The Word is literally tabernacled among us. And we saw his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of truth and grace. Uh, We're going to start a series in Colossians next week. Let me give you a little a little sneak peek. Here's what Paul says in Colossians about Jesus, that he's the image of the invisible God, and in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. In him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. You see what they're saying? Jesus, it's the glory of God and the tabernacle of the body of Jesus. God sent his son in the world to put his beauty, his holiness, his excellence, his name, his honor, and his victory on display. That's why Hebrews says that he is the radiance of the glory of God. But he's more than the tabernacle. He's also the way in. You remember, the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle in Exodus 40, but Moses can't go in because 
the holiness of God is filling it. And it's odd. Because isn't this why God made the tabernacle? So that the people would have a way in to him? So that they could have access to the holy God? There's a curtain at the front of the, uh, the tent of meeting of the tabernacle. Which is a, it's a barrier. But it's not like a wall. Right? It's a curtain because it's supposed to be a, provide a way in for the people. So how do they get in? Well, in Leviticus 9, they go in. It's just the continuation of, of this story. The people bring to Moses and Aaron the sacrifices. And Moses and Aaron make the sacrifices, and they make the sacrifice for sin. And then Aaron and Moses go into the tabernacle, and when they come out, they bless the people, and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. I want you to think this through. In Exodus 40, 33, right before the section we read, let me put it this way. All of Exodus is God instructing Moses on how to do the, erect the tabernacle and its very detailed instructions. And then it goes through and talks about how Moses did all the things that God said to do, just as God said to do them. And then in verse 33, it says, and Moses finished the work. And then right after that is when the glory of God comes down and fills the tabernacle. It should ring, should sound familiar to you because Jesus comes down to do the work of God. In John 5, Jesus says, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. In other words, Jesus came and got instructions from God and did everything just as God said to do it. And then in John 19, we see Jesus hanging on the cross and he says these words, it is finished. And he breathed his last. And the glory of God came down. In that moment, the literal curtain at the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And so, whatever the barriers were for anyone, whether it was shame or guilt or pride or just a sense that they had sinned so badly, whatever the barriers were, there were no barriers anymore. The way to God had been opened not through the gate of the temple, but through faith in Jesus. Anyone can come in now by faith. It's awesome. Now, what does this do for us? Here's what this means. It means that the, the truth of the gospel, the glorious truths of the gospel, can be yours personally. They can be your personal reality. You can move past just having knowledge of things, and you can have firsthand knowledge of God in Christ. Uh, there was a period of my life where I was sort of trying to get into art just because I thought, cool people like art, you know? And I really like Monet, which I realize is obvious. And uh, so I just, I'd looked through different prints, and I really liked them. They were great. And then I went to New York on a trip, and we ended up at the Metropolitan Museum, and I walk in, and I don't know what's going to be in there. I literally had never, I don't think I'd ever been in an art museum before. And I'm like, all right, what's going on in here? And I come to the originals. They're not prints. And I didn't realize paint could like stand off the canvas like that. And I was mesmerized by it. I had knowledge of Monet. I had seen the prints. But now I'm face to face with the original, and it just blew me away. It was a kind of emotional. That's the gospel. 
It's the glory and the magnitude of the God who you know is out there right in front of your face. Paul says that we behold the glory, the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. He's right there for you. It changes you. When he gets in your face, you feel not his crushing judgment, but the weight of his billions of pounds of love for you. Let me give you a couple of examples how this might connect for you, and then we'll, we'll wrap up. Some of you really wrestle with purpose. Like you're in another job, and it's like, well, I don't know, maybe this is what I'm supposed to do, maybe not. Or you've just, your life sort of gets mundane, and you're like, what am I doing with my life? Well, I think connecting your life to the glory of God infuses it with purpose beyond anything, beyond getting the dream job, which will not be the dream job as soon as there's another job that's offered up. What we need to see in this text is that God is with them and he's leading them. If you don't know what to do next, whether it's work or a big decision or whatever it is, the glory of God is with you, leading you. And more than that, it's in you. God has put his spirit in you. God made the church now to be the the temple of his spirit, spirit so that we manifest the glory of God for the world to see. This is what Jesus said. He said, you are the light of the world. Let your light shine. Let your good works be evident to people so that when they see them, they they not pat you on the back, but give praise to your Father in heaven. God is glorified in you in whatever you do, whether it is eat or drink or go to work or whatever. You can do all of that for the glory of God. The reason we get stuck on purpose is because we've been sold this myth that each one of us has to be the very best and change the world and we can do whatever we want if we just set our mind to it. I'm all about hard work and I'm all about aspirations, but we're losing sight of the glory of God in everyday life. Whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do so for the glory of God. Many of you are paralyzed by just the need for people's approval. I'm one of you. I'm there. I see it. In this text, it says, uh, God came down when Moses finished the work. It was a sign of his approval that Moses had done everything right. And the same is true in Jesus. When he finished the work on our behalf, God set his approval not just on his son, but on us. You don't have to define yourself by what people think about you. Your worth as a person is not wrapped up in other people's opinions or your perception of their opinions, for sure. You're free from that. You're free to bask in the glory of God's favor on you in Christ. You're free not to be served, but to serve. You don't have to take anymore. You can give. This is how the glory of God radically changes us. When we wake up in the morning, ideally we wake up with some some sense of fresh start. We have like goals and aspirations, things we're going to do and accomplish today that maybe we didn't yesterday, whatever it is. Most of us wake up optimistic that today's going to be different. And when we go to bed at night, uh, we have in us this burning question, which is, how did I do today? What did people think about me? That's how we define how we did today, usually. I wish as a church, as a people, we could wake up in the morning and go to bed at night with this verse. Psalm 115.1, not to us, Lord, not to us, but to your name 
be the glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Let's pray. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Providence Church. For more resources and info, visit us online at www.providenceaustin.com.